All right, this morning we have been working through a series on a life that is called, and we're halfway through it. As long as it took us to get through the Sermon on the Mount, we are at the halfway point on a life that is called. And the purpose of this is coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, we want to look at undeniable, unmistakable ways that the Christian life is called to act and believe in this world as we seek to bring forth the kingdom of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians that as prisoners, as prisoners of Christ Jesus, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have received. If you didn't see it in the very back, we have bulletins with some sermon notes on the back that might help you uh, follow along here this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover. This is not meant to be an all-inclusive sermon on defense and justice. Uh, but we're going to endeavor to take out as much as we can this morning. So when we look at the call as believers, what have we been called to? The wonderful thing is that we don't have to guess. We guess at a lot of things in life. You know, what are we going to eat for lunch? What are we going to do tomorrow or the next week, this year? What does my year look like? But as believers in Christ Jesus, we do not have to guess what he has called us to. And today we are going to look at the call throughout Scripture to defend the vulnerable, to defend the widow, the fatherless, and the poor? Or is the Bible has a really succinct way of defining it as justice? Isaiah 1.17 says this, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, just from that verse alone, we see already today that the Bible has a much fuller definition of justice in what we might define it as in our modern minds. We tend to think of justice as right judgments and proper punishments, which is right, but that's only one form of justice that the Bible speaks to. Now, this could be an entire sermon series on justice, but we're just going to look at the introduction to biblical justice today. Now, over the past few years, as social media has given us a closer view of crime and inequality and the cries of justice, they have come right into view by our smartphones. No longer do we have to hear about injustices that happen around the world. They are instantly accessible. We could all pull up our phones right now and find an injustice around the world. But what's odd about this, even though it's instantly accessible and we see injustice all throughout the world, instead of calls for justice uniting a nation, I mean, this is a part of our pledge, liberty and justice for all. Instead of it uniting a nation to a call for justice, it has divided a nation even further. We tend to look at injustice in, injustice in the world, and our instant reaction is to say, ah, who's responsible for that? And why is that my problem? And if I'm being honest, I've asked those questions. What is this to me? How am I responsible? Why is it that I'm being held liable in some way to respond in certain ways, especially when there are so many people that says that justice looks this way, and then on the other side of the aisle, people will say justice looks this way. And in a world ripe with injustice, how are we supposed to respond? And since we're being honest, 
true justice can feel somewhat unachievable, can it? There seems to be so much corruption. There seems to be so much injustice in the world that true justice seems never to truly be done. And here's where we are today, is holding these two realities at odds. Injustices that seem to be out of the realm of our influence and injustices that have been done to us. And this is where the tension comes in for us, practicing justice while living in an unjust world. So today, what our goal is, is to begin to see biblical justice and what it calls us to. And just as a warning, this has been a heavy week for me as you look at injustice in the world and you wonder what my responsibility is in it. And well, some people see that as an injustice. I might not see that as an injustice. How are we to respond? So before we even begin, I want to give us three ways that the gospel helps prepare our minds for encountering injustice in the world and the response to believers. Okay, here are three ways. The first way is this. As a believer, every aspect of your life is in submission to Lord Jesus. Every aspect of our lives is in submission to Lord Jesus. There is nothing that submission to Jesus in his kingdom does not influence. From our work ethic to the way we spend our money, from our private lives to our public lives, the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel should be shaping how we view every person, every relationship, every decision that we make. Our lives are not our own. So even though at times where justice seems like, I don't know about that, we submit our wills and our minds to Lord Jesus. The second thing that the gospel calls us to, to serve the vulnerable, we must become vulnerable. Submission to the Lord Jesus calls us to lay down our lives for others. Listen to Paul in Ephesians. He says this, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, what's tough about this passage is that it's not biblical hyperbole. Paul's not just using lofty language to get our attention. There are men and women in the first church that are literally laying down their lives for the cause of Christ. For us to serve the vulnerable, we must be okay with becoming vulnerable. Uh, Casper Timboom, he was the father of the famous Corey Timboom, who hid Nazis in their house uh, during German occupation. Now, during the German occupations, the tin booms refused no one. They either housed their Jewish neighbor or they found a home through their network where they could stay. Their lives were constantly at risk. They knew at any moment a Nazi soldier could come in, raid their home, and imprison them all. For them, it would have been very practical and rational to keep your nose clean and say, well, for us, you know, to protect my family is first. And so justice, I'm sorry, Jewish neighbor, you're going to have to go find somewhere else. But for me, I've got to protect my family first. But they didn't do that. One day, a, a pastor brought a baby and a mother to them that the pastor was unwilling to keep. Taking on this child would greatly increase their risk because of the noise a newborn baby makes. And the Tim Booms were well known in this area. Casper's response, he says, we will turn away no one. When the Nazis finally did raid their home, 
and sent them to prison, do you know who remained unfound in their home? All the Jews that they hid. You know who was imprisoned and led to prison? The Timbooms. Now, what's amazing about this story is when Casper goes before the German lieutenant, the German lieutenant, for whatever reasons, shows a really strange unkindness to Casper. And he looks at him and he says, now listen, old man, I know that if I send you home, you won't cause any more trouble, right? You'll live a quiet life. How easy would it have been for Casper to say, yeah, absolutely, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I won't do it again. You know what his response was? I will open my door for anyone who comes to me for help. Ten days later, his naked body was thrown into an unmarked grave. To serve the vulnerable, we must become vulnerable. When great injustice is in the world, it requires us to be vulnerable, to lay down our lives. The third one is this. Obedience to Lord Jesus brings us to difficult places. Yeah. Now, in our lives, we might not see this as much, but to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute you, to pray for those who persecute you. First Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, so that we might do what? Proclaim his excellencies into the darkness. This means that as Christ followers, that we live in submission to Lord Jesus, we become vulnerable for the vulnerable to proclaim the good news and the hope of King Jesus to come. So when we come to the topic of defending the vulnerable and justice, the first question we ask isn't, what would you have me do, Lord Jesus? The first question we need to ask is, what have you already called me to? It's not, what should we do? What have you already called me to? As followers of Jesus, who has given our life to his lordship, what has he called us to? So with this in mind, we're going to read from the prophet Isaiah uh, in chapter 58. And here's just a few things that you'll notice as we read this. First, you'll notice the people that uh, the Lord is speaking against through the prophet Isaiah. These people seek to do what is right. They're eager to know his ways, and they ask for just decisions. But the prophet, through the, the Lord, through the prophet, says that they're still in rebellion. So we're going to read verses 1 through 14. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read this. It'll be on the screen just to get our minds active, the blood flowing, uh, because we've got a lot to cover today. So let's read this together. Are you ready? I'll take that as a yes. Here we go. It says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. And if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God, they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer their shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail." Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. You may be seated. Let me pray for us uh, before we continue. Father, these are hard words in Isaiah, and you have hard words for us. And so, Father, I pray that These difficult words don't just bounce off of us, don't bounce off of our hard hearts, our hard minds to say, oh, well, we've got it all figured out. We we know what to do. Father, I pray that we submit ourselves uh, as a church and as individuals to your word, your will, and your spirit. Father, help us to uh, not only seek after you, but to do what you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we'll notice here that uh, what the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking, the Lord is speaking against his people, that they are in rebellion. Now notice what he says. Day after day they seek me. To seek the Lord is to worship. They go to the temple. They offer their sacrifices. They are consistent and constant in worship. Day after day they seek him, which means it's sustained. They continually go before the Lord. It says this, they seem eager to know my ways. The Hebrew word here is passionate, and the translation kind of mutes the irony here of irony of verse one here, but we shouldn't miss it. They are in rebellion, but they are passionate to know his ways. They seek him and worship diligently. They're passionate to know his ways, and yet they are in rebellion. Not only that, they ask for just decisions. They seek right living. They want to know all about how they should be living. They want to obey the commands. But here's where it turns. 
It turns by them asking, why have you fasted and you not seen? It's almost in a way that they, they're seeking their passion and they're asking for just decisions is to get something from God. For God to be their genie in a bottle, almost. Isaiah 1 has even harsher words that add an extra level of sting. Starting in verse 13, I don't know if I have it up here. I do. Here's what the Lord says against his people. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing what is wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, I don't know if you've been like me and the years that you've attended church service where you come in on Sunday mornings and everything has a rhythm and a routine. And like this morning, we sang four songs, someone prayed, we come up and see, see, uh, have a sermon. It seems like we have a ritual that we follow. And so there have been some Sunday mornings, especially as a kid when I was growing up in church, I would just question everything. I'd be like, well, what are we doing here? Like, why are we doing it in this way? Like, why do we spend so much money on printing out these bulletins? Is this really the right way for us to do it? And what we call this in the secular world might be like a quarterly review or a yearly review where we look back on our last year and we say, all right, how we have been doing. Now, Isaiah 1 is kind of like a yearly review of sorts where he looks at the assemblies and the gatherings of his people and, they, and the Lord says, they are a burden to me. I cannot bear your assemblies. Why? Because his people do not seek what is right. Alpine, this should be a, a very real question for us. When we gather on Sunday mornings, have we been a people that have been committed to what is right? Have we been a, commit, a people that have been committed to what the Lord has called us to? So that's going to be our goal this morning, to look at biblical justice. So the first question, what does biblical justice look like? One word that is commonly translated to justice in our Bibles is the Hebrew word mishpat. Biblical justice can't be reduced to a set of bullet points for us to follow. Justice is rooted in the very character of God. To follow Jesus is to have his heart in a sense. So we cannot separate living a gospel-centered life and seeking justice. We cannot say that we have a gospel-centered life, but yet not seek justice on one side. To not defend the oppressed, to not caring for the fatherless and the widow. Now, mishpat can refer to a few things. First, it can refer to retributive justice, meaning that you pay the consequences. So whatever the injustice is that you have caused or that has been caused against you, you pay back what is lost or you receive the punishment for what you have been done. If I steal $5 from you, I need to pay you back $5. That is retributive justice. But the most common uh, translation of mishpat is restorative justice. It goes a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. It means taking steps to advocate 
for the vulnerable. Listen to how justice is described in Proverbs. It says, to open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. The prophet Jeremiah tells us, rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression, violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Bruce Waltke, on his commentary in Proverbs, says it this way about Mishpat. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. A life that truly seeks to follow Jesus will be a life that seeks Mishpat, to make ourselves vulnerable for the vulnerable. And this is not something, it's not a new idea. Listen to Paul in Philippians where he says this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." Notice the qualification. If you have any encouragement, any comfort, this is like the smallest bit that Paul is asking for. Look within yourself. Any of this, consider others above yourselves. A gospel-centered life is about breaking the chains of injustice. And this is what the Lord has called us to through the prophet Isaiah, to set the oppressed free. And for some of us, this is really difficult to see. For some of us in our lives, in our daily routine and rhythm of life, it is hard or difficult to see injustice uh, that we could have influence over. But if you want to see injustice in the world, just go talk to your local public school teacher. Go talk to uh, your lo local public school principal. My sister is a principal at Pineville Elementary on Main Street, Pineville. Now, Erin's school serves a lot of lower-income minority families. In her school, she has children that have shown up to school with drugs and drug money. She has had children who have parents or grandparents that have prostituted themselves with children in the household. They have sold school property to make money. There are children who have been physically beaten by their parents, who suffer emotional and physical trauma because of the home that they have been raised in. And if you think this is, well, this is just a new problem, it's gotten a lot worse, it's not true. Talk to my mom. She was a public school principal at South Grant many years ago. One day she had a student come in that was being disruptive in class. The teacher couldn't figure out why, and so finally she just sent the kid down to the office. The kid went to the nurse saying that his shoulder hurt, that his shoulder was causing him pain, and that's why he kept getting disruptive in class. And so with permission, the, the nurse lifts up the back of the kid's sh shirt to look at his shoulder, and on the back of it is an imprint of a hot iron. You know what this is? It's injustice. Now, you know what we'll say, well, the left will say, well, this is because of systematic injustices that have happened in the world. There is systematic oppression that has happened by social structures, and if we got rid of this, it would be better. And the right will say, nope, it's not that. 
It is because of the failure of the home. It's because we've removed the nuclear family and parents aren't being responsible for their children. But you know what no one says? You know what no one says about the 10-year-old who's still struggling to read? No one says it's the kid's fault. No one says that. Because it's a great injustice on these children. So might there be social structures that are causing disadvantages for the kids? Maybe. Is it that parents are uninvolved in the home? I've seen it. But you know what no one says? That it's the kid's fault. And this is where we are called as believers to serve mishpat, to serve justice, to make ourselves vulnerable, to insert ourselves in the lives of others. I believe some of the greatest missionaries in the world are public school teachers because they have the greatest ability to influence young minds who may never know, who may never hear of the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. To seek biblical justice is to defend the oppressed and the fatherless, to insert ourselves in the lives of vulnerable for their sake. What this means is that in our communities around us, we have to seek out mishpat. We have to see where injustice is and not just seek retributive justice, not just to seek out the kid and just call CPS and get him out of that situation, but to insert our lives to build up the life of that kid in, in whatever way we can. And I'm not here saying that I have all the answers. I'm just here to tell you this is the calling of our lives, to insert ourselves in a vulnerable way. Question number two, how can we practice justice? Uh, Tim Keller has a wonderful article uh, on uh, God and justice. And he says this, Biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity, universal equality, and life-changing advocacy. Radical generosity first sees that everything that we are and have as belonging to the Lord. While capitalism will say that our money belongs to us, Socialism says that your money belongs to the state. The Bible says your money belongs to God, and it's loaned out to you. First Chronicles 29, 14 says, But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. In Luke 16, Jesus calls us to be wise stewards of our wealth. A steward was the manager of an estate under its owner, making him both a master and yet also a servant. So our wealth belongs to us, and yet it doesn't. The first church in Acts was willing to sell their possessions to give their needs, uh, to give their possessions or the money to serve the needs of the church, to help the disenfranchised, to create opportunity for the poor to be taken care of among them. To be radically generous is to practice justice. To be radically generous with your money is in a way, in a form, to practice justice. Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 1 both speak to this, to give uh, food to the hungry, shelter to the wanderer, clothing to the naked, we can't do this without resources. To be generous is to practice justice. So there are two ways for us to be radically just generous. We talked about the first one in money. The second one is time. Time is probably uh, the second most limited resource that we have. 
And here's what I mean to be radically generous with our time, is to invite people into our midst and to truly get to know them. You see, coming to church is more than just sitting in a service and listening to the preacher talk. It's more than just coming to Sunday school and having a little lesson. Going to life group or Wednesday nights or Sunday school, it's more than just investing our time into learning. That's a part of it. Learning is a very crucial and vital part of it. But another vital element is to be around, to be there, to listen to, to know the people that make up the church, to build relationship, to listen, to act, to commit to one another. When we reduce church down to just singing a few songs, to listening to a couple of lessons, then there will be an urge within us to say, ah, well, I can just miss it today. When we reduce it to just a couple of songs on worship and then communion at the end and hearing the word preached, when we reduce it just to that, there can be a temptation for us to say, ah, I could watch it online. Is a church service important? Is what we do on Sunday morning important? Absolutely. But you know what is also equally as important is to build relationships with the people within our body, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor if you're never with your neighbor. One way to be radically generous is to be generous with your time. To be radically generous is to insert our lives into the lives of others. Second, universal equality. Now, universal equality is a uniquely biblical idea, and it is so foundational to the Christian faith, and it is so wonderful and beautiful at the same time. Biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. Why? Because we are made in his image. We are image bearers of the most high God. And Jesus will elevate this to say, whatever you do to the least of these people, whatever you do to the people that you look down on or don't look like you or are different parts of society, you've done it to me. How can Jesus say that? Because we are made in his image. Leviticus 19.15 says, You should not be partial to the poor, or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 16.19 says, You shall show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Now, if you want to know what the oldest uh, book or the oldest code of law that we have, it's the code of Hammurabi. This is from ancient civilizations. This is like pre-Bible Hammurabi. Now, what's interesting about Hammurabi uh, is this. Criminal penalties changed depending on social class. If a man of an upper class murdered someone of a lower, his sentence could be just a financial fine. But if a man of a lower class even stole from a person of a higher class, the penalty was death. Biblical justice demands the same penalties for the same crime for every person, regardless of social status. And the Mosaic law never punished theft with death, not because theft was not serious, but because the Bible saw every human life 
is infinitely more valuable than property. What makes the biblical worldview of equality so radical and so valuable is that man was made in the image of God. And what should make the church so remarkable is that we treat every man as such. What makes the Bible so radical is that every man is made in the image of God. And what should make the church so remarkable is that we treat each other as such. That we intrinsically have value. Now, not that we're intrinsically good. Don't mishear me. Not because we even do right things. Scripture says no one does good. No, not one. All of us, though, all of us have worth. I'm not saying that we are worthy, but we have worth, value, not because of what we have done, but because of who he is. And he's made us in his image. This is a uniquely Christian view that man was made in God's image and that every human intrinsically has value. Corrie Tim Boom, well, when she was standing on trial in front of her Nazi lieutenant, he was asking questions, trying to get her to divulge information about her underground work to help Jews escape. But in her trial, Corrie doesn't let on. She doesn't let the lieutenant know that she knows what he's really asking. She plays dumb the entire time. So when the lieutenant asks, is there anything else that you want to tell me? She says, oh, you must mean my church for the mentally handicapped. She says this, and I plunged into an eager account of my efforts at preaching to the feeble-minded. The lieutenant's eyebrows rose higher and higher, what a waste of time and energy, he exploded at last. If you want converts, surely one normal person is worth all the half-wits in the world. I stared into this man's intelligent blue-gray eyes. True national socialist philosophy, I thought. Tulip bed or no. And then, to my astonishment, I heard my own voice saying boldly, May I tell you the truth, Lieutenant Roms? This hearing, Miss Tim Boone, is predicated on that assumption that you would do me that honor. The truth, sir, I said swallowing, is that God's viewpoint is sometimes different from ours. So different that we could not even guess at it unless he had given us a book which tells us such things. I knew it was madness to talk this way to a Nazi officer, but he said nothing, so I plunged ahead. In the Bible, I learned that God values us not for our strength or our brains, but simply because he has made us. Who knows? In his eyes, a half-wit may be worth more than a watchmaker or a lieutenant. With that, he explodes. He calls the guard to get Tim Boom out, puts her back in prison. But the next morning, you know who comes to get her out of her cell? It's this lieutenant, and he brings her back, and he says, I've not been able to sleep thinking about this book that you've been talking about. He says, I hate the work that I do here. And in that moment, Corey Tim Boom was able to share the life-changing, ever-loving love of Jesus to a Nazi officer responsible for killing how many people? Every person that we come, that we have any encounter with, from the child in the womb 
to the person who is about to take their last breath, no matter their intelligence, no matter their physical capabilities, no matter their mental capabilities, they all have value because they are made in the image of God. Why can we be vulnerable for the vulnerable? Because Jesus has. And this is the high view of justice based on the biblical truth being made in God's image. Now, just to put some numbers of injustice in the world currently, um, my mom shared this website with me. I think it's IJM Ministries, International Justice Ministries. Uh, They are committed uh, to seeking out injustice in the world. Uh, They're a group of Christian advocates that go and do this. Here's some numbers that they have on their website. There are over 40 million people in slavery right now. That means there are more people enslaved right now than in any other time in human history. Today, 40 million people enslaved. Sex trafficking is a $150, a $150 billion, with a B, dollar industry annually. billion industry annually. Slave owners prey on the vulnerable. One in four are children. For us to be people who serve the vulnerable, for us to be people who step in the way of oppressors means that we might become oppressed. For us to seek out justice means that injustice might be done to us. To do so, we must be willing to expose ourselves to hurt, pain, and pray for those who persecute us. What is biblical justice? It's mishpat. It calls us to go above and beyond. It calls us to write judgments, but it calls us to radical generosity, universal equality, and lastly, a life-changing advocacy. Psalm 41.1 says this, blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and the poor. This word translated consideration means for believers to pay close attention to the weak and the poor, seeking to understand the causes of their condition and to spend significant time and energy to changing their life situation. This is only because I have firsthand experience, but according to the Bible, there are structures and systems that are set in place that disproportionately affect the poor. And I've seen this firsthand. Uh, about six years ago or so, um, I worked uh, in insurance. And uh, primarily, I, I did home and auto and life insurance. And one day, uh, I had this young lady walk in. Her name was Kanisha. Uh, she was a young mother. Uh, the father of her child had left, gone without a trace, abandoned her and the baby. Didn't want anything to do with her. She was working. She was trying to make it work. She was trying to find affordable childcare, affordable housing, a job that would pay for these things. But to get a job, she had to have transportation. She had to get to a job. So she got a, a beater of a car, and so she had to put insurance on it. Louisiana law. It's a good law. I'm not saying that that is a, a bad thing at all. But when she came into my office to put insurance on this car, Uh, She just wanted state minimums, just whatever the law required that you had. Now, if I were to put insurance on that car, it would have cost me about $50 a month. You know how much it cost her? $400 a month. Do you know why? 
because insurance is based off of your gender, your age, where you live, your credit score, your job, and your education level. If you are a, a wealthy man with good credit that lives in a good area, that drives a reasonable distance to work, your insurance will be drastically less. Because in the system, they figured out that the, these people that, uh, who I've just described are most likely worse drivers, and they're most likely going to cause an automobile accident. Kanisha was making $1,800 a month, and $400 of it was going to car insurance? It's a great injustice. That is, that is injustice in our world. You say, well, I don't know, she could take the bus. I was talking to my sister one day uh, where they had some people come in uh, to her school office and they were asking how they could help families within her school system. And she's like, I, I, I don't know. Transportation is probably the biggest deal. Transportation is probably the thing that is most difficult for our families. So we have a mother in our school that if she wants to go to the grocery store, she has to take her three children, go wait at the bus stop for an hour, take a three-hour bus ride to get just to the other side of MacArthur Drive, where she could walk across the highway. I mean, it was probably a mile walk. But it was a three-hour drive from one bus, bus stop to another to get to the grocery store. So she's going to load up her kids, get on the bus, take this drive, three hours later, go to the grocery store, come back, wait at the bus stop, take another three-hour drive to get home? Now, these are, are small ways that, while they might not necessarily be injustices, public transportation is not necessarily an injustice, it's a good thing, it helps out our people. What is wrong for us to say about that mother with three kids that might leave her kids at home so she can walk across the street. Well, we shouldn't say, well, she's in the wrong. Or we, should. we should be people that seek to help out the disadvantaged. And by this I mean, we should be so well known in our community that if there is a mother in that position in Tioga, Louisiana, or whatever it is, that we have a, an ability to somehow help out the hungry. What that looks like, church, look, I'm, I'm not saying I have the answers. But what I am saying is that we can't just sit back and say, ah, there's no injustice in the world. Everything is working pretty much as it should. Everybody's fault is their own. No, there, there are just some things in place that make it difficult on the poor. It happens today, and the Bible addresses it however many years ago. So for us to be people, we must... Uh, of justice, we must practice life-changing advocacy. Proverbs 29, heaven says this, the righteous care about justice, mishpat. They care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. The righteous care about wrongs being made right. The righteous care about inserting their lives into the mess of the poor. Now, there is a wrong way for us to read Isaiah 58. We can read Isaiah 58 and say, why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Why have our prayers not be heard? The wrong way to read this is to say, ah, we just left something off the list. 
I've sought him. I've been eager to know his ways. I've sought his justice. All I need to do now is just add charity to the list. And then God has to answer my prayer. That's the wrong way to read Isaiah 58. If we practice these things to get God to do what we want, then it's no longer God that we're serving. We're wanting God to serve us as if we are the God. Life-changing advocacy must also be seen in our life-changing advocate in Jesus. Many of us have been taught that Jesus came to suffer for us, which is way, which is right. But in another way, he came to suffer with us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of, as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Jesus was born in a borrowed inn. He was laid in a feeding trough for animals. His parents, when they took Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, they were so poor that they offered two pigeons as their offering, which is allowed to the poorest of the poor. Jesus was born into a poor family. He worked a difficult trade. His ministry even was nomadic. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His last meal was in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And what does God do about injustice? He comes and suffers with us and for us. He is our life-changing advocate. Jesus, in Hebrews, the author says that Jesus has been tempted and tried in every way that we have, yet without sin. Jesus is our life-changing advocate, where Scripture says now that he is interceding on our behalf for the Father. This morning, I can guarantee you that all of us here at Alpine have turned our heads away from injustice. At some point in our lives, we have not lived morally just lives all the time. But here's the good news. Remember in Isaiah 58 where he says, you will be called the repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is Jesus. In Isaiah 61, this Jesus is the one that comes to break the chains of oppression, that comes to the brokenhearted. And now because we are in Christ Jesus, we have a life-changing advocate that washes away all of our sin and gives us true righteousness. He is truly our mishpat. Jesus is the one that with retributive justice means that the consequences of sin are death, but Jesus paid the retributive justice. You and I, we all deserve hell, but Jesus stood in the place to pay our consequence. Jesus, the just one for us. But Jesus doesn't just do that. Jesus is also the restorative justice, where he takes it a step further. He seeks out the vulnerable. He seeks out the one who have been taken advantage of and comes to help us. John 3, 17, for God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Lord looks upon our helpless estate and becomes vulnerable to help us 
who are vulnerable. Be restored in Christ Jesus. Come to him. Find your fullness in him. See the love of God in you through Christ. And then be people that have the heart of Jesus that seek out the vulnerable. Now, what's crazy, I don't know if this will blow your mind like it's blown mine. Uh, this September, this marks uh, the start of my fourth year here as pastor. It's, it's weird. I have three complete years here now as pastor. Now, when I started uh, here as pastor, you do like you start any new thing. You look at the lay of the land, you think, all right, what, what are we going to do? What's going to be uh, our footprint, you know, going forward in this community? What things have, do we do well? What things can we do better? What things do we not do well that we need to get rid of? What will a good ministry look like? And before you know it, you know, as a new pastor, uh, what I had is I had all of these other people coming in and telling me what successful ministry would look like. And they'd ask questions like, well, what does your Sunday attendance look like? How many, how many do you have on a Sunday morning? Do you have a lot of young families? Oh, that's good. You have families with babies? That's great, man. That's the best way to grow the church is just have more babies. Pretty soon you'll have a full, full church. How many old people do you have? Do you have old people, elderly people? That's good too. They're, they're your good tithers. They're the ones that will sustain the ministry of the church. What's your music look like? Is your music good or can it be a little bit better? I have a friend that's a, uh, that leads worship in a, a, a large church of about 2,500 in Michigan, and we don't see eye to eye on church philosophy or ministry, but he's a friend nonetheless. And when I first became pastor, he came in to the church building, and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to paint this black, back wall black, and you need to lower the lights, and you need to get really good music in here, because when you're attractional, people will feel welcome. And I was like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. What does a successful ministry look like? Is it having a thriving children's ministry? Is it having a thriving youth ministry? Yeah, those are things that could look like, like that. But as I've, I've thought about it in Isaiah 58, and I've thought about what a successful ministry here would look like for us, or Isaiah 1 even, where he says... Uh, to defend the widow, or, or James even. True and undefiled religion is this, to take care of the widow and the orphan. What if Alpine, First Baptist Church, is not known because we have the best music or the best youth program or the best children's ministry? Are those fine things to have? Sure. What if it's not known because we have the most dynamic preacher or Sunday school teachers? What if it's not known for that? What if Alpine First Baptist Church was known for being a refuge to the widow? What if our church was known in Tioga, Louisiana, which is demographically a lower, older income of people, what if it was known that a widow who's not associated with our church could come here and find assistance and help? What if it was known at Alpine First Baptist Church that we took care of the vulnerable? What if that was the true marker of a successful ministry? That we didn't grow in attendance by a, a young and old, but that we grew tenfold by the amount of widows that we had come in here? I think that's what a successful ministry would look like. I think that's what it might look like. Is that Widows and the disenfranchised know that at Alpine First Baptist Church, it's safe. 
So here's my call uh, to uh, the men and women in our church, the able body among us here. Do you know our widows? Do you know them? Do they know you? Do they know the skill, the talent, the, the, the abilities that you have that could come along and assist them? Do they have your phone number? Do they know your name? A way for us to practice justice is to be radically generous with our time, which means that on Sunday mornings, a way that we can be radically generous with our time is for us to go and hug our widows' necks, to love on them, to serve them, to see how we can help them. To be radically generous with our time means that this Thursday at 11 o'clock, we set out time to go to Joy Lunch. And we sit beside our widows. We get to know them. We love them. We come alongside them. Now, I know that I'm asking this question in a way that says we can do better. And we can. We, we can. But I'll also say this about Alpine First Baptist Church. We have men and women within our body who have done this excellently. Who've done this excellently. I wish he was here. Pete LaBeouf, he is a man that has loved our widows well. He's a man that will go cut their grass, check on him, on them, serve them in any way possible. You wouldn't know it because you wouldn't advertise it. But Pete LaBeouf has been a man that has served our widows well. Andrea Madison, you wouldn't know it because she wouldn't advertise it. But she is a lady that has given her life to serving our church and the women of our church. She is a dear friend to Miss Winnie. Now, you would know these two, not because they advertise it, but because they're in everything that they do, because they love our church body so much, Miss Stephanie and Miss Doris. You know why we have Joy Lunch Thursday? You know why we have an opportunity to serve our widows in this way? It's because Doris and Stephanie. You know who meets every Monday morning to sow with widows within our community, within our church, people that are not associated with our church? It's because Doris and Stephanie. These are women that are practicing justice by looking after the widow. Church, we can do better, we can. But know and see that we have opportunity right now to serve and love our people. My challenge to us is, do our widows know you? Can they call you? Do they have your number? This is a way that we can practice biblical justice. This is a heavy, um, this is heavy. Because justice requires all of us in a way. It requires every part of us that we become vulnerable to serve the vulnerable because there is one who became flesh for us in Christ Jesus. Look to him, find him beautiful, and as you seek him in his ways, see how we can serve one another in justice. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, <coughs> your word calls us to a lot, and I will be first to confess uh, I'm not very good at it. And... Uh, I need your help by your spirit, but uh, Jesus, uh, don't make me like, don't make us like these in Isaiah 58 where we just seek to know your ways, we're passionate to know your ways, we seek just judgments. Father, help us to see in your word what you have already called us to. Father, give us wisdom at Alpine to know what that looks like. 
You have called us to defend. You have called us to justice. Help us as we do these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.